2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as, matter, uh, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no Lack. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, this text of Scripture, Lord, for Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church, in particular, Lord, about giving. And we ask, Lord, that from this text that we can get a sense of why Christmas is such an important day to set aside and to celebrate. And Lord, give me now uh, just wisdom as, as the one that is your mouthpiece, Lord, that let what I say be reflecting, Lord, your truth faithfully. And Lord, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Christmas is all about giving, isn't it? I mean, you have been spending the past few days, I am sure, thinking about particular people and trying to connect them to particular gifts. If you're like me, you probably you know, wrote a list of names down, and then you thought to yourself, okay, what, what dollar value can I put next to those names? Because we all probably have some kind of a budget that we don't follow, right? So you put it there, right? And then you'd say, okay, well, what gift then can, can actually connect to that name that this person would like? And so you put a lot of thought and, and intent into the purchasing of that gift for that person who's special. And so once that list is done, you go to the dollar store and you get your gifts and you're done, right? Well, hopefully that's not true, right? 
But if you are like most people, you probably in today's age first look on Amazon to see whether or not they have the product that you're looking for that you know this person's going to take, right? And you make those purchases and then people steal them from you and all that kind of stuff, right? But you, that's the first thing you do. Then if that doesn't work, you head off to Target or to Kohl's or to Walmart or some places like that uh, thinking you might find them at a discounted price, especially at Kohl's because, you know, you have that Kohl's cash thing going on, right? You can work their deals and all that kind of stuff. And then after maybe you, you still haven't found what you're looking for, you say, okay, I'm going to do the rest at the shopping mall. And so you, like every other person, goes to the mall. Now, if you really love these people, you're not going to go to Southland Mall. You're going to go to Stone Ridge Mall, right? Because you want to make sure that they know that, that you're getting this from actually a more reputable place. I'm just kidding. You know that, all right? I mean, it's not like people are walking around with Southland or Stone Ridge Mall bags, but you get what I'm saying, right? But the, the real reason you go to Stone Ridge is because you want to you enter into Nordstrom's and pretend like you actually belong there, right? You walk around sniffing and doing things like, you know you're not going to buy anything, but you want to pretend. And in the spirit of Christmas, everyone else is doing the same thing. And then, finally, if all else fails, you go to Safeway and you get a gift card, right? I mean, that's kind of like the, the way it goes. This is, this is what Christmas is like for most of us, right? This is the kind of thing that we go through. So Christmas is all about loving others and wanting to show them how much you love and appreciate them by giving them a gift. Now, friends, this is what our text is all about today. It's about giving. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's appealing to them to give out of their abundance for the needs of the poor believers in Jerusalem. And so he's using now some, some arguments and some appeals to help them get to this place. Now, we, we need to back up a little bit. The Corinthians knew about the gift or the collection that was being gathered for the saints in Jerusalem, but a conflict had arisen in the church um, that was a, a conflict of false teaching that put the gathering or the collecting of that gift or the actual final sending of that gift um, kind of in jeopardy. Paul writes this letter, he resolves the conflict, and now he is saying, I want you to pick up where you left off. You started to collect these monies for these people, but now I want you to, to continue to do it and press on and, and have that money sent. And, and in order to encourage them, he appeals then to three things. And I want you to notice what Paul is appealing to here. He's appealing, first of all, to the example of the Macedonian church. And the Macedonian church, we're told in verses 1 through 5, gave out of their affliction and poverty. They didn't have much. But what they did have, they gave out of it. So likewise, Corinthian church, whatever you have, give out of it. Secondly, he appeals then to uh, the grace that they, the Corinthian church, have received themselves. If you look at verse 7, he says, But just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, and in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So he's, he's commending them to be lavish in their generosity, out of the grace of their spiritual gifting and maturity. 
and to prove their character and their genuineness by their giving. And then, as his kind of trump card or climax argument, he, he focuses on something that is far more supreme than the examples that he gives. A, a gift that is the purest, has the purest motivation. And namely, that is the abounding grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, that is, that is what we see in this text. Now, grace has been defined a number of ways, but I like this definition. You're not going to be able to write it down, but just listen to it. The utterly undeserved, royally free, effective, unwearying, inexhaustible goodwill of God, active in and through Jesus Christ, God's effective, overflowing mercy. Or, to put it a little differently, as Paul says in our text, in verse 9, though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now friends, I'm not preaching a sermon on giving to the churches, just to warn you. So I came to church on Christmas, and that pastor was speaking on giving. He's going to pass an offering. That's not what we're doing here. But I want to show you here that the appeal that Paul uses to stir the church up to give is a little appeal here in verse 9 that is the gospel, that is Christmas in all its beauty and wonder and glory. So to put it a little differently, Paul is saying, although in his pre-existent eternal glory and deity, he was in possession of spiritual riches whose wealth words are unable to describe. He nonetheless voluntarily and sacrificially renounced those riches and embraced the poverty of life and death as a human being, precisely so that we who were destitute of God's favor and blessing could be enriched with the very righteousness of God himself. And so, friends, this morning, we want to look at this one verse, and I want to challenge you to, to, to celebrate Christmas. And as you do that, recognize that Christmas celebrates the wonder of the incarnation that has a lasting and overwhelming impact for those who believe in Christ. Now, there's supposed to be a wonder at Christmas. And you, you go to, to places where there's all sorts of lights and trees and decorations, and, and, and there's something, uh, something kind of beyond the normal that you're just like, wow, this is so beautiful, it's so great. But understand, that wonder that we see on display is only supposed to be a shadow of the true wonder that is Christmas, and that is Christ himself. All that beauty, all the lights, all the, the glitz that we have at Christmas should draw our attention that there's something far more beautiful, far more wonderful than what you're seeing. And it is this wonder of the incarnation and this wonder of the incarnation that has this lasting and overwhelming impact on everyone who believes in Christ. And so let's begin by looking at this text First of all, by considering the riches of Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. What does it mean to be rich? Well, in our 
society and culture, rich means a number of things. For some people, it means the 1%, right? It's kind of like the, the Vogue expression now. For many, it's, it's simply those who live in larger houses and have multiple vehicles. I used to think that way when I was growing up in a different country. We're like, oh, wow, we got two cars. In today's world, most families have two cars. So, I mean, you know, it's just kind of, it's all relative in one sense, right? For others, it's measured by the tax bracket that you might be in, depending on what year and era it is. It can also include the kind of clothes that you wear, the vehicles you drive, the hobbies you might have, the subdivision that you live in. Now, do you know any rich people? I've known some rich people in my past. In fact, I've known some people in my past before they came rich, right? And you're saying to yourself, wouldn't it be great to know them after they became rich, right? But, you know, so I, yeah, I know that person. They don't want anything to do with me, but I know them, right? Now, according to Forbes magazine, the five richest people in 2018 are George Bezos of Amazon, $112 billion, Bill Gates, $90 billion, Warren Buffett, $84 billion, Bernard Arnott, $72 billion, Mark Zuckerberg, $71 billion. Now, two things I can tell you about this list. Number one, I'm not on it and neither are you. Second thing I can tell you about this is I don't personally know anyone who is on this list. There's something above and beyond when you talk about society's rich people. So what does it mean to be rich? Again, just thinking through our world. There is average rich. Where people have more money than most people, but not incredibly wealthy. I mean, if you know some people who are wealthy, they probably fit into that category. Then there's medium rich. These are the, the multimillionaires. And there's the super rich. These are the people you see on reality TV. And then there's the incredibly rich. That would be the people we just listed off. Now, let's just think about those people in terms of flying, okay? This might help a little bit to kind of paint the picture. The average rich, they fly first class, right? They're the ones that are already seated, having their drinks, while you're struggling in with your bags on the plane, right? That's the average rich. Then there's the medium rich. They just charter a jet for themselves. The super rich own the jet. And the incredibly rich own the airline of which the jet is a part. But hear this. Jesus owns the skies that those, fly, those planes fly in. All right? there is this, there's this kind of idea of, of wealth that we, in our, in our you know, sinful struggle, desire and hunger for. But friends, some of that is because we do not understand what riches really are. Jesus is rich. It says here he was rich, and it's speaking about what he had before he left heaven to come to the earth. Notice that it says he was rich, not he became rich. In other words, this richness is a reality of his, his eternal existence. Richness is all he ever knew. 
The richness refers to his eternal glory, his position as the Son of God, his eternal attributes, his eternal possession and ownership. Just think about those statements. Who he is as the Son of God and his position as the Son of God. All these incredible attributes that that describe him, that are him. And then the fact of all the things that are his. Jesus is eternal. He existed in eternity past. This is clear from Scripture. Let me just just quote some Scripture for you just to to settle that. This is Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient or eternal days. Isaiah 9.6 talks about the everlasting Father as a description of Christ. Then we have John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. And you have John 8.58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's There's an eternal dynamic to who Jesus is. It wasn't I was. And then in John 17, verse 5, Jesus is speaking, says, And now, Father, glorify me in your, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right? So there's this understanding that Jesus is eternal, but he's also eternal, and he's full of deity. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And friends, just to kind of paint the picture even more, I'm taking a little snippet from a, a, a theology by Charles Hodge, and I want you to listen just what he says here about the riches of Christ. All divine names and titles are applied to him. He is called God, the mighty God, the great God, God over all, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to him. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, immutable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder and ruler of the universe. All things were created by him and for him. And by him all things consist. He is the object of worship to all intelligent creatures, even the highest. All angels are commanded to prostrate themselves before him. He is the object of all religious sentiments, of reverence, love, faith, and devotion. To, To him, men and angels are responsible for their character and conduct. He required that man should honor him as they honored the Father, that they should exercise the same faith in him that they do in God. He declares that he and the Father are one, that those who had seen him had seen the Father also. He calls all men to him, promises to forgive their sins, to send them the Holy Spirit, to give them rest and peace, to raise them up at the last day, and to give them eternal life. God is no more, sorry, is not more, and cannot promise more or do more than Christ is said to be, to promise and to do. He has therefore been the Christian's God from the beginning in all ages and in all places. 
Now, friends, I, I'm, I'm laboring this point because I think sometimes when we think about Christmas and we think about God, we don't necessarily comprehend the magnitude of God and what him being rich actually means. Now, there's a Christmas verse that tells us the true identity of the babe in the manger. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So think about it a little bit this way. Just think about Christ a little bit this way. This is kind of a, an unusual illustration, but just think about it this way. Take the 10 richest men and women who ever lived and the 10 most powerful rulers who ever ruled and the 10 wisest men who pondered life's questions and throw in the mightiest generals who ever went to battle and the 10 strongest athletes in every sport and the 10 most mesmerizing orators plus the 10 greatest political leaders and any 10 other great men and women left on earth, calculate their accumulated wealth, power, influence, skill, genius, wisdom, insight, and ability. And what are that vast sum comes to? Jesus had more in heaven. His riches, his wealth is something that we just cannot wrap our hands around. No man or collection of men could come close to him. He was rich. He didn't leave heaven in search of riches. He had no need to. He didn't go looking for money. He owned it all anyway. He is rich. Theologians speak of the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. He existed in eternity past, not as a pauper or a beggar, but in glorious splendor. Sometimes at Christmas... We limit our wonder to a child in a manger. Here's this child being born. Oh, isn't he cute? <laughs> he's being adored. Please hear this. He's not being adored because he's a cute child. He's being adored because of the wonder of this thing called glory becoming flesh. And so we can find ourselves drifting off into human sentimentality away from just, just being in awe of the riches of Christ, the, the richness of who he is and the place from which he came. This child is the long-expected Messiah. And so we need to press on to see the wonder that this child left his royal position in heaven, that he was rich in the fullest extent. And I just wonder whether we get that. I wonder if we understand it a little bit. And friends, it's going to be a, we're not going to be able to understand it completely, are we? But we can move in a way that we begin to, to discover and remind ourselves of the magnitude of the riches of who Christ is. He was rich. But now let's turn our attention to Christ's poverty. Christ's poverty. He was rich, but we're told here, yet for your sakes he became poor. What does it mean, the poverty of Christ? It means that he became poor. He was rich in eternity, but he became poor in time. Now, when we think of the poverty of Christ we often make the mistake of viewing him through the lens of human 
poverty. And let's put that to rest a little bit here. Some would say that he was economically poor because he was from Nazareth, and people don't like people from Nazareth, and he was you know, from a, a despised group of people, and some of that may be true, but let's just think a little bit about what we do know about him. Jesus was a carpenter. Some would say he was a bricklayer. That's what that word means. But he was also, if you want to put it this way, the son of a carpenter. We realize that Joseph wasn't actually his biological father, right? But we understand that Joseph was that father figure that, that, that grew up with him. And so his, his father was a bricklayer. So the, the point here is this, that he had parents, he had family, he had a job, he interacted with people that were reasonably well off. They were not the rich, but they were reasonably well, well off. Just think about the wedding of Cana, and that was a family affair, and what is happening there? There's lots of food, and there's lots of wine, and they're saving the best for last, all right? So I'm just trying to get get a sense here. Jesus is not in this human poverty, you know, in a corner as a beggar with his hand out. He was living just kind of the the regular, if you want to say, middle class, lower middle class lifestyle that that most people live today. And so we want to be careful that we're not painting the wrong picture that Jesus was a beggar in a human sense. Hear this, friends. His poverty was the fact that he was so rich and he was able to condescend in this incarnation and take upon himself the form of man. He was willing to let go of heaven. And he was willing to set aside the free exercise of his divine and glorious attributes to be confined only to human Flesh and the frailties that accompany that human flesh. Now, I just try to think of it in kind of my own understanding terms. Imagine you walk up to an anthill. Now, not that you want to, but just imagine that you did, right? You could just look down at that anthill, and there's just thousands of ants in there. And you could stomp on that anthill. And kids, don't go home and do this, right? But you get the point. You could stomp on it. You could destroy ants and destroy the hill. Or you could look on that anthill with compassion and you could say, you know what, I want to I get to know these ants and I want them to know that I care about them. And so, in some miraculous way, you're able to transform yourself and to become an ant and not use any of your skills as a human being, but you're fully and completely and 100% an ant and you're going you're gonna to kind of interact with the rest of the anthill as an ant, okay? I'm just trying to, this is a horrible illustration, but at least gets the framework of saying, what would it be like for a human being to condescend to the place that they're just an ant? You understand that the, the, the magnitude of the change that's taking place there, right? And that doesn't even compare to the magnitude of who Jesus is ruling and reigning in eternity past, and then condescending in his incarnation by taking upon himself the form of man. Friends, that is, that is huge. That is poverty. Paul describes the poverty of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 and following. You know it well. 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So though he existed in eternity in the form of God, possessing all the riches of deity, Jesus emptied himself, becoming poor by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. So that means he suffered human weakness and limitations. He was hungry. He thirsted. He was tired. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So what are some other ways that, that Jesus became poor? Well, he left the glories of heaven for the sadness of the earth. He stooped to enter the world through a mother's womb. He, he became a dependent creature. He endured rejection and ridicule. He refused to return evil for evil. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then we ask ourselves the question, why would he, Jesus choose to live this way? Why would he condescend like that? Why would he come as the God-man? The answer is simple, yet it is profound. He became like us because that was the only way he could save us. Now, he didn't mail a letter from heaven to tell us what to do. He didn't shout something down or text it to us. He came personally to us, to be with us. So God himself came down and entered the human race. He became poor like us so that we could receive his grace. No one forced him to do it. No one took the crown of heaven from his brow. No one removed him from the throne. No one stripped him of his royal robes. He wasn't trying to somehow get back to heaven which would be a, you know, the typical thing that would happen like on a movie, right? You know, a deity is somehow you know, thrown down to earth and now they're going to find their way to get back to heaven. That's kind of like Greek mythology type stuff. That's not what happened here. Everything that happens here comes from the heart and the intent of the heart of God. He removed his crown of glory that he might wear the crown of thorns. He let his heavenly throne, he left his heavenly throne that he might lie in a feeding trough. He exchanged his royal robes for swaddling clothes. See, no one forced poverty upon him. He gave up the glories of heaven for the misery of earth that we might share in the glories of heaven with him. Now, friends, he comes as Emmanuel, right? Which means what? God with us. Now, let's push this a little bit more. There's a pretty well-known story about a Shah who was a Persian monarch, and he reigned in opulence and splendor in this beautiful and comfortable palace, and yet he had concern for those who were his subjects. And so often he would leave the palace dressed like a beggar, and he would interact with them. And one day in particular, he, he descended these, these flight of stairs down, uh, down this, these long flight of stairs, and he found down there this man who was a, a fireman who was sitting on a pile of ashes tending the fire. His job was to keep the fire going. 
And so this ruler sat beside him in his tattered clothes and just began to interact with him and to talk with him. And at lunchtime, the fireman shared his meager meal of bread and water with this Shah who was in disguise. And he would come back day after day and interact with this fireman. And this fireman just grew to really look forward to those times and, and, and appreciated the kind of counsel and wisdom and friendship that he was getting from this Shah. Finally, the Shah could, could, could not contain himself anymore. He had to reveal who he was, and so he did. And he said to this poor fireman, listen, can I give you a gift? I want to, I want to, to show you my love for you. And to his surprise, the man was, was silent. He said nothing, but merely sat looking at him with, with love and wonder. And so just wondering what was going on in his heart, he, he pressed him again. But the, the fireman answered this way, Yes, my Lord, I understand you, but leaving your palace to sit here with me, to partake of my humble food and to listen to the troubles of my heart, even you could give me no more precious gift than that. You may have given riches or rich gifts to others, but to me you gave yourself. I only ask that you never withdraw your friendship from me. Now, friends, you know, again, this is a limited illustration, but it helps us understand the heart of God and our heart then in receiving this wonderful friendship, this wonderful relationship that we can have with Jesus. We know the, 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 the Christmas carol, Thou didst leave thy throne. It says this, Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for the holy nativity. Heaven's arches rang when the angels sang, proclaiming the royal degree. But of lowly birth didst thou come to earth, and in greatest humility. You see, there's this, this contrast. There's, there's this riches, and there's this, there's this poverty. The riches of Christ, the poverty of Christ. Now, Colossians 2.9 says, in him all the fullness of, uh, of deity dwells in bodily form. So hear this. Christ did not become poor by subtracting something from his godhood from himself. We read a little earlier, he emptied himself, right? And so it's kind of a really a bad translation. Not in the sense that the translation is bad, but our understanding of what that, that word means causes confusion. And what we need to think about here is that he willfully, joyfully set aside the free exercise of his divine attributes, some of them, so that he could fully live out his life in his humanity. And so he became poor, not by subtraction, but he became poor by addition, by becoming what he wasn't even while never ceasing to be what he was. See, he didn't come, uh, become poor by ceasing to be what he was, God. He became poor by becoming what he was not, man. He is the God-man. Just think about some of the comparisons that we've seen between the riches of Christ and the poverty of Christ in Scripture. And I have a few that are listed here on the screen. I just, just want to press home against the sense of all this. He is rich as the uncreated creator, but poor insofar as he assumes a created human nature. He is rich as the divine son of God, and yet he is poor 
as he was born to a poor virgin who had been disgraced by suspicions of immorality. He is rich as the rightful owner of everything in heaven and on earth, and yet poor as he is born into a stable and laid in a manger. He is rich as the one whose glory fills the earth, who is rightfully worshipped by the saints and the angels of heaven, and yet he is poor as the, the one who was made for a little while lower than the angels. He is rich in as the sustainer of all things, upholding the galaxies by the, the word of his power, and yet poor at the same time, being sustained by the nutrients of his mother's body. He is rich as the immutable or unchangeable one, so perfect that he could never change for the better and so righteous that he can never change for the worse, and yet poor as the one who kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. And again, we could just we could continue on and continue on. I mean, another one that's striking to me is that he is rich as the God who owns the cattle on the thousand hills, and yet poor as the man who had no place to lay his head. You see, just you see the contrast here, and that's why Scripture is very, very clear. The foxes he had created had holes. The birds whose life he sustained by the word of his by his word had nests, but the Son of Man who spoke the world into existence, had no place on that earth that he created to call his own. He is the bread of life, and yet he hungered. He is the one that is the fountain of living water, yet he thirsted. These are just they're the same in contrast, aren't they? But they're, they're, they're pictures, and they're the realities of the fact that Jesus, who was rich, became poor. This is his incarnation. And friends... Hear this, no one was ever richer than the Son of God. And no one was ever poorer than the Son of God. And that is simply the first part of this text. Because Christ's riches and Christ's poverty move us now to Christ's purpose in all of this. And what is the purpose? Well, let's read this passage once again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And just try and take note of the words that are specifically given to those who are the original readers, and then, of course, ultimately, we who are reading it. First of all, I want you to notice the words, for your sake. When you think about the incarnation, you must think about the incarnation with the three words, for your sake. Jesus didn't just pursue poverty for himself. He had you and me in mind. He wasn't doing this selfishly. He wasn't doing this in the sense of, as I would say, sinfully, selfishly, trying to, you know, trying to create his own thing. He was doing this out of a heart of love and care for those who would believe. And it's good to be reminded of what the scriptures teach us in Ephesians 1. And just listen to Ephesians 1, verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I mean, that just blows your mind, first of all, right? Just the whole reality of that. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's all sorts of God is doing this to you. God is doing this to you. And he was doing this to you before the world was even created. But he had this purpose in mind. You can try and wrap your mind around all that we've just read there. But it's what scripture reveals about the character and the intent of God. The mind of God, the heart of God intended for the Son to leave the riches of heaven and enter the poverty of his created world for your sake. Everyone who's sitting in here, for your sake. We're not kind of like, you know, catching a ride and something is happening over there. And could we be a part of this? No. He came to earth for your sake. That's the first expression I want you to notice. Then I want you to notice the second one, and it's very similar. And it's so that. <laughs> he came for your sake so that. Again, here's the purpose of the Godhead and the coming of Christ. Jesus left the comfort of riches to take on the mantle of poverty so that we who are in poverty might become rich. The price your sin required was nothing less than the death and the curse of the Son of God in your place. The wrath he suffered at his Father's hand was the wrath you deserved, but Jesus bore that wrath instead of you. He died paying for your sins, forgiving you and reconciling you to the Father. Now you who believe, you're free. You who are poor, through his poverty, have become rich. And by rich, I do not mean the passing treasures of this earth, which moth and rust destroy, which thieves break in and steal. Do not come to a text like this and say, See, God wants me to have more stuff. That is not even on the radar here. That is not what is being communicated by Jesus coming to this earth. He's rich, so you want to go to heaven so you can have riches? You're not even going to comprehend what riches are on this earth compared to what is in heaven. But if all we're doing is looking at this earth and saying, I want riches, and this is the problem, friends, with the, the whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel message that is out there. It only looks at now. It only looks at what's temporal. It doesn't look ahead to the beauty and the inheritance that you have as the children of God. God's people are poor. Some of them are rich. And those who are poor have responsibilities before God. And if God has blessed you with resources and you are a follower of Christ, you have a greater responsibility with the things that you have to use them for the glory of God. Not for yourself. 
And the whole prosperity gospel, friends, is, is so easy to twist scripture and proclaim. And people believe it. Why? Because people want more stuff. They think that money's the answer. Money isn't the answer. The answer is Christ. The answer is the gospel. It's the riches that are spiritual riches that, that our hearts really long for. The other stuff is temporary. So in the New Testament, we have passage after passage reminding us of the riches we have as a result of Christ. Let's look at a few of them together here. Let's look first of all at uh, the riches of Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This grace, this gift was given to preach um, uh, to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the message that Paul was preaching. The immeasurable riches of God's grace, Paul says in Ephesians 2. The riches of his kindness, the riches of his glory. And then he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then we have to say, okay, well, what about the riches that are now granted to those who believe. Jesus is rich, but he has granted riches to those who believe. Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. We like that. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, I realize, you know, we, can, we enter into a passage like that. We say, oh, Jew and Greek and, you know, slave and free and all this kind of, we, we get off on social things and whatnot. What he's communicating is, listen, all of you, male, female, rich and poor, whatever color, skin, ethnicity you have, if you are mine, you are the possessor of the riches of Christ. All of you. There's not a one of you that doesn't have if you're a follower of Christ, the benefit of the riches of Christ that is already at work in your life, that is at your disposal. And that's why he says in our text today, so that you by his poverty might become rich. How you become rich is through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By having this conversion where you're saying, God, I am nothing. I am a sinful creature. I need to be saved from my sins. Only you can do that. And what you have done on the cross is paid for those sins. By virtue of that, you now move from poverty, spiritual poverty, into spiritual riches that are yours. It's not just a ticket to heaven, friends. It's a whole world. It's a whole dynamic. It's a whole family that you have now become a part of that comes with all sorts of benefits. Now, in theology, we call this Christ's imputation. Christ's imputation. And it has two parts to it. It's a financial expression. And it means to post something on an account. Okay, so like when you go to the account, you go to the bank and you say, I want to deposit this check into my account. You are imputing money into your account. So what God does here, what Jesus Christ does as a result of his death is that he, he imputes something to us. He pays our debt. 
The debt that we have accumulated because of our sin, that is paid for us by his death on the cross. You with me so far? But that's not all. <laughs> he gives us then riches above and beyond that. So let's just think through this a little bit. Imagine you, you were in debt $50,000 to a bank and you had no way of paying it off and you were, you were potentially um, going to experience some bondage from that bank, ongoing uh, struggles, and potentially jail time. But someone who loves you comes along and they pay off your debt. And you're like, wow, that is, man, that is amazing. That's awesome. And that would be. Now, it's not because you did anything to work off that debt. It's not because somehow you owe them now, in that sense. It's just a free, loving gift to make sure your debt is paid. But not only that, he doesn't stop there doesn't stop paying the debt. In fact, he, he adds more money to the account so that you will never, ever, ever, ever be in debt again. All you have now are riches in abundance. Now, I'm using human transaction finance terminology, but it gives us a picture of what Jesus has done spiritually to our sin with his riches. He's paid our debt, but he has bestowed upon us riches. Do we understand that? See, it's not just, oh, I got my ticket to heaven. Do you understand all the bags that you have now full of riches that you're taking with you to heaven? That's why Paul says in praise, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's overwhelmed with, with all these things that are his. So what are these riches now that are ours? Let me just list off a whole bunch of them for you. Union with Christ, our Redeemer and friend. The forgiveness of sins. The payment of our debts. The washing of our sins. The cancellation of our guilt the granting of righteousness, the clothing of that righteousness, the permanent indwelling presence and activity of the Holy Spirit, a cleansed conscience, a new Christ-centered perspective that produces in us joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. And we add to that the becoming partakers of the divine nature, the friendship and community of the body of Christ as church, Freedom to come boldly to God in prayer, seeking help and guidance and relief and wisdom every day. Ongoing and increasing conformity to the likeness of Christ himself. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the penalty of sin. And one day, freedom from the presence of sin and the suffering that accompanies it. An eternal inheritance. The hope of our place in heaven. The joy of being a part of the eternal family of God. It's, it's as if, friends, you, you went to that Christmas celebration and you had a box, and on that box it had your name, and it said, from Jesus to your name, and you open up this box, and in this box it is full of all sorts of riches. You, just, you can spend all your time pulling out the stuff that you now have in Christ. It's not just one present, <laughs> 
It's a present full of all sorts of spiritual riches that are yours and that are at your disposal. Now, friends, it's, it's quite a picture, isn't it? And every day... And every time we come to church, every time we're reading our Bible, every time we're gathered together for a Bible study or something like that, and we, we see something that is there, we're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I remember that. It's, like, it's almost like the, those things that you find in your junk drawer that have been there for like three or four years. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe today you'll go home. You'll be inspired. You'll go home. You'll pull out that junk drawer, and you're like, oh, that's where that is. Oh, that's really, really cool. Oh, man, I missed it. I've been wondering where that is because I've needed that. And just as you go through life and you're walking with God and you open up his word or you hear a sermon or whatever, you're like, I remember that. Oh, that is good. Oh, I need that. Oh, that is so, so good. And you're refreshed by what you're reading. God's riches are there for us every day to help us grow, to help us get perspective, to help us uh, have security and hope and confidence in the life that we're living here for his glory. Charles Spurgeon commented on this whole concept here, and he says this. A rich man on earth has a cistern full of riches, but a poor saint, believer, has a fountain of mercy ever flowing for him. Let that saint draw as much water as he wants, for the fountain will never run out. He is richest who has a fountain. Our world says he is richest who has a cistern full of stuff. Stuff will last a while. You'll have fun with that stuff. Other people who have stuff will look at you with your stuff and they'll go, wow. But it'll be gone. It won't last. But the fountain of spiritual riches will continue. They'll, it'll be a fountain that flows forever. So friends, if you're a child of God, I want you to hear this. Jesus, who was rich, became poor. So that you, who are poor, could become rich. I don't think we quite understand how rich Jesus is in his eternal glory. I don't think we quite understand the extent of his poverty. And to the same degree, I don't think we quite understand how rich we actually are if we are God's children. Now go home, friends. Go open your spiritual gifts. Discover what's there. Discover the riches that he has given you. Your life is a full, ongoing, joyful discovery of the riches that we have that we do not deserve. But come to us because of Christ, who left heaven to come to earth, yes, as a little baby, to go to a cross to make that payment so that we who are in poverty might become rich. That is the gift of Christmas, the true gift of Christmas, my friends.
Ponder it. Believe it. Love it. And let it grow you in your faith. God has given you so much. Take advantage of it. Love his word that reveals his riches to you. Love to be a part of God's people when they're seeking to to flesh out those riches. What do they look like? What does it mean? And then, as you turn around and recognize the, 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 the magnitude of, of the richness that you have, may it give you a fresh perspective on the stuff that you have, the money that you have, the circumstances that you have, that you might be a little freer in saying, I can help this person out. Why? Because I'm rich. I don't need this. You take it. Why? Because I am rich. Oh, not rich in a human sense, but rich in a spiritual sense. This is all stuff, but I have the greatest gift. And that gift is to be called the child of God, to be a part of the family of God. Lord, help us today just to consider the wonder of the incarnation. And the overwhelming and the impactful nature of that incarnation on we who believe. Lord, I think in our sinfulness, our struggle, we fail to see how rich we really are. And Lord, maybe this Christmas is a Christmas for us not to be so consumed with the physical presence under the tree. But maybe it's a time for us to truly reflect on the gift of the salvation, of the gift that is the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. Because it's a gift that only comes from you. May we see ourselves, Lord, not as rejected, but as welcomed and embraced. Oh, Lord, we have our struggles. You know that. We have people who are going through physical struggles, cancer and other things. We have people who are struggling financially. We have people, Lord, who are struggling in their relationship with one another. But, Lord, out of those riches that you have given us, we have perspective. We have, we have hope. We have direction. We have counsel. And, Lord, it's because of you. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder of the wonder of your incarnation. We are overwhelmed by the impact that it has on us who are rich because of you. We ask now these things in your precious name.